Hi, so welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to teach a class, write his dissertation, and eventually to get a job. And uh, right now we are switching to a new series where we're going to be uh, not just talking about specific bits of my research and teaching, but we're going to be interviewing a series of actual real life historians. And today I am really happy to introduce you all to uh, Dr. Michelle Beer. Do you want oh, to... hello. <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, Dr. Beer has, has just come out with a book called Queenship at the Renaissance Courts of Britain, Catherine of Aragon, and Maggie Tudor. Not Maggie, that's what I wrote down in my notes. Margaret Tudor? Margaret Tudor, Margaret yes. Tudor. Mm -hmm. Okay. Did yes. anybody call her Maggie? Was this I like, don't think so. Was that no. like a, a, a live <laughs> nickname at the time? I don't think, no, I think um, Meg maybe, but I'm not sure about Maggie. I could be wrong about that. <coughs> and of course, in Scotland, I have no idea. <laughs> I bet they, all the, all the British nicknames get really puzzling to me. Yes. Like mm -hmm. the number of nicknames that you have for Elizabeth. Like, yes. Mm -hmm. it, yeah. It, it, it's always seemed like one of those like weird and penetrable complexities of, mm -hmm. of British history that like. Right. Yes. And that's, I mean, it's. It's sort of the British love to shorten words and names just generally if you go over there. You know, there's it's never um, just uh, one word. They like to sort of uh, shorten and, and play around with words just generally. They don't know. just shorten and play around with words. They shorten it and they muddle it up. Like yes. they just, like mm -hmm. they, it's, it's, it's like a, a drunk person just invented a language. Well, yes. I mean, and, you know, they, they've they invented several of them. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so uh, tell us a little bit about, about your book. When I, mm -hmm. when, I, when I think about queenship, uh, I mean, in my mind, I just think of like a person who gets a, a pretty picture with a bunch of pearls, but I think you're talking about something else. Do you want to... Right. So I guess to start or start off, um, I'm talking about queen consorts. So we're probably very familiar with the idea of the queens who ruled in their own right during this period. You're Elizabeth I, you're Mary, Queen of Scots, you're Mary I, Bloody Mary. Um, and they get all of the attention both in popular culture and um, a lot of times by historians. But what I'm actually talking about is the the wife of the king, the queen consort, who is um, you know, probably best known in this period for the six wives of Henry VIII, right? And I'm talking about his first wife, uh, Catherine of Aragon, who was his, um, not only his first wife, but his longest uh, marriage. Um, she was married to him longer than any of the other wives put together. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so she was, you know, at least two decades, you know, depending on when you count their marriage being over. Um, so we're talking about Catherine Varigan, who's his first wife. And then I'm also talking about um, Margaret Tudor, who's a queen in Scotland at roughly the same time. Um, she's married to James IV of Scotland, and she is uh, happens to be Henry VIII's uh, sister. So what I've got is a sister-in-law situation going on across the border at the same time. And I'm looking at how these two um, not only interacted with each other, but also um, interacted with their court um, and how they kind of became queens during this period. Because we don't have a great idea of how um, queens, especially at courts uh, such as the Renaissance courts, where you have Henry VIII, who's this huge, you know, uh, personality. He kind of dominates everything. Yeah, I think of that gigantic, that, that, that gigantic portrait. Yes, where he's got his him. hands on his hips yes. and his legs are spread and yes. he is, you know, like, I am in control of everything. So you you have yes. him kind of do 
dominating the English court um, uh, during the 16th century. You've also got um, in Scotland, you've got uh, James IV, who who doesn't have quite the reputation sort of popularly that Henry does has, but um, he's also very bombastic, very active monarch, and um, in, and tends to overshadow everything else around him. Well, so let's talk about you how these women became queens, right? Mm-hmm. So. Are the did they become did they have to like work to become queens within their courts? Yeah. So one of the things that queenship studies is relatively new, but one of the things that's come out of it in the past couple decades is this understanding that marrying the king doesn't just sort of solve all your problems and make you a queen. You so have the to, Disney movies were wrong. No, it's never happily ever after, yeah. I'm afraid. Um, even for queens who had good marriages. And Catherine and Margaret, despite what you may have seen on you know screen, did actually have fairly functional marriages during this period. But they had to continually reassert their status because, um, because they're women, because they're foreigners, um, because there is a lot of tension in the fact that they are at the heart of political power in their various courts, even though they are these foreign women, they have to continually reassert their elite status, their sort of um, uh, their distance above their courtiers, which they do through things like the way they dress, um, the way they worship, um, the way they um, sort of patronize and, and distribute largesse to others. So they have to reassert this status, but they also have to make connections. They have to make friends because they arrive in these countries, um, you know, very young. They have usually a few attendants from their homelands, but not very many, and they often end up sort of going back home. Um, so they have to make these connections make these um, sort of alliances with the nobility, with their own servants um, in order to um, have sort of information, have um, have sort of the connections that they need in order to survive a court. So how young are we talking about? My, my, my like naive view is that these women are, are not, they're, they're like 14, 15, 16, like barely teenagers. Mm-hmm. And whenever I hear stories about people, these these people being brought to courts, it seems so scary. I think yes. about being in high school and then getting married, yes. and then having to do politics. So is this is what? How old were were uh, uh, Margaret and uh, Catherine? When they yeah, got married? exactly. And how did that like affect? Like, were did their childhoods like? change because of their their queenship. Absolutely. So um, Margaret Tudor is actually 13 when she is sent north to marry James IV. James IV is in his mid-30s at this point. So it's a huge age difference. And this was enough to, um, this age difference was enough to actually get um, sort of uh, comments from observers. And, okay, so um, it was weird back then So it too. was weird. It was yeah. considered a big a big age jump. And she was actually um, sort of delayed by a year. Her, her father did not send her north immediately as soon as like the wedding um, or the, uh, the marriage alliance was signed because she was so young. Wow. So, so there was a little bit of that. Um, but yeah, she sent north in um, at the age of 13. She has essentially a governess accompany her who's at the court for a few years. She's got these sort of older English courtiers around her for several years, and then they eventually sort of go home. Um, And we also have fairly good evidence that um, her marriage was probably not consummated when she was 13. James appears to have waited uh, several years until she was a bit older. So, I mean, that sort of changes a little bit the dynamic because she's essentially sort of in this kind of stasis for a little while, even though she's married to the king. She's yeah. not fully adult yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then Catherine is is 15 when she makes her first marriage, which, of course, is to Prince Arthur, um, the heir to the throne. And she's, um, uh, I'm doing my math here, I think she's she's in her early 20s when she marries Henry VIII. Okay. So yeah. what, what sort of things do they do? 
at court to, mm-hmm. to, to shore up their queenship. I'm imagining like, you know, those big paintings that I, I have in my imagination when I picture them, that that's one of these elements that getting, you know, the pageantry of wearing mm. big, nice clothing. Of, right, right, so right. So what, sort of, what, mm-hmm. what sort of things do, do Yeah, do so participating do? in the pageantry of the court, and this is sort of the age in which pageantry really explodes at the English court um, and in the Scottish court. Both Henry and James love to put on a show, um, whether it's, you know, jousting in a tournament or dancing in a mask. Um, they didn't call them masks, but that's essentially what they were developing at that point. Um, these sort of, you know, elaborate stage dances with, dis- with costumes Costumes and big sets that they would wheel in and all this kind of stuff. They loved participating in that. And as queens, Catherine and Margaret seem to have done something very interesting in that instead of being a participant in these elaborate shows, they are the audience for them. So they are the ones in the stands at the tournament um, or on the dais um, of a dance. And they are the ones to which the show is geared towards because the king is participating. He is, he's off having fun. Yeah. And so they are sitting in these magnificent robes under a chair of a state, usually with a canopy. And they are sort of the, the focal point of all of these entertainments. And so they sort of provide this, um, it's, it's almost like a, a catalyst for the reason why these entertainments exist, right? Because the knights are jousting on behalf of their lady, right? The queen usually, um, or the, the, um, the, the mask, the disguising, the, the dance is, is sort of geared towards her entertainment, her interest. That's such a fascinating form of power. When right. I imagine these pageants, I imagine like uh, in my time period, people, the, the queen actually getting involved, yes. getting mm-hmm. dressed up. Well, they're they're dressed up, but getting involved, dancing, moving, being the center of attention, mm-hmm. being part of the action. But here, they're passive. They yes. gain power because they're the people. They're 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 the focus of all the attention. Right, they're and like the ultra audience. They are. They are. They are the audience. They are. Um, you know, the ones that are uh sort of uh you know sitting back and and really being elevated. So even though the rest of the court are watching the show, they're also watching the queen on stage. Um, the interesting thing is uh, almost all these uh, entertainments, this pageantry is also geared towards the relationship between the king and the queen. So you have these tournaments where he's jousting in her honor, um, where she's bestowing some sort of favor upon uh, the winner, usually the king. Or you have these dances where the king is is disguised in some way, and it's, <laughs> it's the queen's job to pick him out. And it, it you know, it's, it's very the best important. Dancer? Oh, yes, it's the king. It's the king. <laughs> How did I know? It was you yeah. all along under this mask. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and so and she they're enacting sort of their relationship over and over again. He is this very active, virile male yeah. who is doing these various physical feats. Jousting. There, he's jousting. He's dancing. Yeah. Um, she is more passive, but she's also fulfilling her duties. She is the feminine passive um sort of receiver of his activity and you can't have one without the other other than he would just be dancing for nobody right so and and it's very telling i think especially in in henry's case is that he rarely goes for more than a few months of his life without a queen um you know as soon as we we like to sort of joke about this idea that he kind of replaces one wife you know um with another but i think that's very telling in terms of how important it was to have a a female counterpart at court, the the sort of work that they do for him, for the monarchy in general. Yeah, it's not even just even when he's on his deathbed, yeah. even when he's like really decrepit. That's mm-hmm. that's like fat, like without a queen, he could not be masculine. Yes. Or he, he has to be masculine in a different way. Yes. Mm-hmm. This is so fat. Like it, 
one of the, the the things that studying gender over time has shown me is how these stereotypes about how men and women behave are really flexible. Yes. When we think mm-hmm. of manliness today, like I, I think of the old rap song "Lean Back" by Fat Joe. Do you remember this? <laughs> it it, ha- it came out in middle school. It, it's 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 the most ridiculous song. Fat Joe. The entire thesis of the song is. I'm a really tough guy. Mm-hmm. And so I don't dance. When I go to the club, I just kind of lean uh, back. Oh, okay. I right. Lean back. Yeah, now right? I remember. And the, mm-hmm. the whole thing is I'm so manly, I don't dance. Right. Mm-hmm. And for us, like like the kind of ur masculinity is 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 a person who is alone in themselves, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. like a a a powerful like independent man who doesn't need any women, right. do, mm-hmm. doesn't need to dance, doesn't need to show off a Clint Eastwood mm-hmm. sort of type, yes. right? Mm-hmm. But here, like the guy is dancing, yes, bejeweled, probably you know, perhaps wearing high heels. Oh, oh yeah, mm-hmm. um, probably you know, more ornately dressed than 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 the, than the queen. Oh, definitely, yes. Looking no. for attention, mm-hmm. looking for attention, totally. You know, wearing a mask, possibly some sort of makeup. Um, you know, makeup. elaborate hats. I mean, possibly. We 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 don't have enough description to know for sure. Yeah. Um, but you know, th- these were meant to be theatrical performances, so I, there's there's a chance of that. Yeah. I, I mean, in the, today, like, image and uh, uh, getting made up is so female gender. Mm-hmm. You think of Snapchat filters. It's, 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 it's teenage girls, but right, here it's right. adult men. Or actresses on the red carpet. Or you actresses know. on you know, the that's, red carpet. Yeah. That's where the focus is. Yes. Yeah. Who mm-hmm. are you wearing? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just have, I have a dumb question. You know, in my time period, I, I start paying attention to history at 1688. In my time period, it's pretty much Britain, like England and yes. Scotland. Mm-hmm. There's differences yeah. culturally. Oh yeah, but there's not a real Scottish court. Mm-hmm. You know, no. Mm-hmm. What's is there a big difference in your time period between mm-hmm. England and Scotland? Yes, very much so. So much that they went to war multiple times. Um, you know, because they're they're very different and they they have different sort of aims and goals and allies. Um, the in terms of the monarchy and the Scottish court. Um, uh, compared to the English court, um, they're actually, uh, they share in this international court culture that's going on. They're all sort of using a lot of the same um, kind of language, if you will, symbolic language, yeah. um, ways of displaying uh, um, themselves through dress, through pageantry, that kind of thing. Um, they're just doing it in their own way. And in a lot of ways, James the Fourth is actually, in Scotland, he's actually kind of a bit ahead of Henry. He gets into the elaborate tournament game much yeah. earlier. He has... Um, sort of poets that are are celebrating his court and recording what's going on there much earlier than Henry gets into that game. Um, so we actually see uh, James IV is, is much more kind of um, uh, sort of, yeah, ahead of the game than Henry, partly because he's older. He's he's several decades older than Henry VIII. Um, but also I think Scotland has a little bit more of an international outlook at this point um, because they are um, sort of connected very closely to France through these political alliances. Um, Scotland always seems, seems to be more- more francophile they than, are than and and north sea f- focused as well so yeah. james the fourth is the son of, of a danish princess so they've also got a lot of north sea contacts and so that's bringing in a lot more um cosmopolitanism into yeah. the scottish court very very early i mean england gets that too make no mistake but it it happens very early um, and very enthusiastically adopted by the scots at this point so what we, we're talking about how these women became queens mm-hmm. and it seems like a lot of the attention is 
focused on the court itself. Yes. Mm-hmm. Was there kind of like a popular press that was mm. following these people, these queens and these activities? Were mm-hmm. there scriveners like writing down? Were, were there were there people making fashion plates right. of the king's awesome high heels? Well, yeah, a little bit. I mean, we are at the dawn of the age of print in England. Um, and so for Henry's coronation, which included Catherine, she was crowned with him. Um, there were woodcuts um, uh, attached to poems celebrating um, their marriage. And so there's like a little woodcut Catherine you can find with her next sitting next to Henry amongst a crowd of people so you have a little bit of that um, uh, sort of being disseminated you also have um, from for historians um, really luckily you have the ambassadors who are there who are writing down you know Henry did this Catherine did this Uh, this is what they wore and they're sending them out to their um, you know their uh, their masters abroad whether it's in Venice or if it's in Spain or France not just for their courts but for this whole big international court system and they're being yes the whole system is sort of um, you know they're they're commenting on it they're trying to read through between the lines oh she did this you know this means that you know she's friendly with this person they're trying to sort of figure these things out um so the symbolism was actually symbolism that people had to decode yes especially when it comes to you know who people were interacting with and what they were wearing the ambassadors have paid a lot of attention to you know she dressed in the spanish fashion she dressed in the italian fashion they seem to think that has a lot of meaning for both um the queen and the king in terms of indicating their their presence their state of mind i just i just again want to highlight how gender norms change so Mm -hmm. much like today, one of the most dismissive questions that you could probably ask of a woman in power is, "Who are you wearing?" Right. The idea that the clothing sends such an obvious sense of political signal mm-hmm. is kind of so female gendered and so yes. so so diminishing mm-hmm. of female political power. But here, the "Who is your wear- who are you wearing?" Mm-hmm. question is a question of high politics. It, you yeah. have like. You know the Henry Kissinger of the of 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 the Renaissance mm-hmm. writing about what style people's shoes are. Right. I mean, absolutely. I there and and. It- I think the interesting thing for the Renaissance is it's men and women. It's, yeah. it's what is the king wearing? What is the queen wearing? And it's it's a. I think that that possibly makes it, you know, sort of a bit more gender neutral. And that's that's something that in when we talk about that issue in our own day, I think often it's not the the problem isn't that you are asking someone who are you wearing, it's that you're not asking, you know, the yeah. the yes. actor that they just spoke to beforehand, who yes. are you wearing? Um so so there's there's a little bit of this kind of, well, you should be at least re- reciprocal in your um interest in what they're wearing, um, which they certainly were in the Renaissance, because it's all about, you know, display and and competition and sort of displaying your wealth, displaying your taste um, through things like your clothing. Yeah. Now, we're probably going to get this out in Mm. early 2019 when our press is probably going to be obsessed with the royal family of Britain, with Meghan Markle having a, a kid. Right. So I'm wondering, were people back then as obsessed with royal mm-hmm. babies because it seems like yeah. it, i don't know it, when when whenever it happens i feel and amongst my british historian colleagues that there's this collective groan <laughs> like oh they're gonna they're gonna be talking about a royal wedding mm-hmm. like somebody you know one of my colleagues whose whose name i'm not gonna mention will inevitably write a jacobin article about how our obsession <laughs> with the royal baby shows that we're all i don't know uh uh, uh 
uh, degenerate mm. uh, 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 liberals. But, yes. but did, were, were people in the Renaissance and, and, and your mm-hmm. time period as obsessed with royal babies? I mean, absolutely. I mean, for the firstly, for the very obvious uh, point that uh, royal babies were not only heirs to the throne, but heirs to the throne in a time when that meant a great deal of power um, attached to it. So, I mean, nowadays, I mean, as much as the royal family does a lot of good in the world, they don't hold political power, really. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, Henry VIII, on the other hand, and his family very much did. Um, same with James IV in Scotland. So a part of the obsession um, of royal babies uh, back then was, you know, this this was actually the political future of the nation was um, determined whether or not the queen had a baby um, and whether or not that baby was male or female. So, so there's partly that. But there's, I mean, generally... It, you know, that that sort of explains it on one level, but on another level, it still was of a great deal of sort of personal popular interest. Um, and we see that in the way in which courtiers kind of um, and interacted with uh, the queen when she was pregnant. There's a great deal of pomp and ceremony that goes along with it, um, which we could talk about if you want. Um, there's a great deal of sort of rejoicing when the baby does arrive um, and uh, equal to, if not more than the fuss that we see nowadays. I mean, we think that the press is very sort of intrusive and nosy, um, but you know, in the Renaissance, that was definitely also happening, um, where they want to know, you know, who the baby or you know what what baby did she have, and also you know, there's a lot of detail and, and attention paid to sort of you know who's the godparents, who's carrying them at the christening, what what gifts were given. All of this is sort of um, being kind of uh, analyzed and looked at for clues in terms of like the politics of the situation. So is this a way that that these queens are like? It, doing some do exerting political power through mm. their pregnancies or, or, um, or no a little bit it's it's more of an it's an opportunity for them to um again sort of assert their status and yeah. to ensure their own um legitimacy um because it's it's very important that when a queen becomes pregnant it's acknowledged as the legitimate um, you know, heir to the throne, if in the case of the firstborn, obviously. So, um, so they use a lot of these these things that we might think is frivolous. Um, you know, cradles draped in silk and that kind of thing, and when, and um, silverware, you know, displayed in the birthing chamber and all this like, kind so, of stuff. Wait, wait, wait. Yes. So wait, 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 wait. When you get, they go for their lying in. They're having yes. labor, and yes. they get mm-hmm. a silk lined cradle and silverware. Yes. Just to no. look at. They would have they would have the silverware displayed on on the sideboard um, because usually there would be you know food and nibbles and things out for people because it's a big gathering you're going to have a lot of women in there always women all women um there's never any men in in the birthing chamber um once the queen takes to her chamber to give birth no men allowed but you'd have all of these women there um so there'd be with nibbles with nibbles absolutely um you know spiced wine um because it could take a long time you're you're in there for usually you know uh, aside from the, the birth itself the queen takes her chambers up to like a month before the birth actually happens And so there's a lot of just sort of like existing in the queen's chamber and having to sort of, you know, uh, exist and kind of, you know. She takes her chambers a month before... It ha- I yes. thought I was going to mm-hmm. be woke and be like, yeah, sometimes labors ha- take like three days, but they, yeah, no. um, a month. She's, she, she's she in takes, her chambers she's in her chamber. Month. Yeah, she she ceremonially retires from court life about a month before they think the baby is due. Um, 
And then all of the men in her household get kicked out and it's only women waiting on her in the chambers. And it's very, they're very specially prepared. They're draped with particular um, types of of wall coverings, usually made of silk. Um, They close up all the windows because that's supposed to, fresh air is supposed to be bad for the mother. Um, She has like a special bed. She has a special pallet to lie down on, all of this sort of stuff. Um, And it's all sort of taking place within this very enclosed chamber. And she's sort of in there for about a month until... Um, roughly a month. Sometimes they get it right. Sometimes they get it wrong. Um, for example, Elizabeth of York uh, took to her chamber and had the baby two weeks later. So very, very, that was, you know, they miscalculated or the baby was premature. We're not sure, you know, that kind of thing. So, so, yeah. so, so I'm baffled. Like she doesn't leave her room. She doesn't leave her chambers, which is like a series of rooms, maybe like, I mean, it could be anything up to about four or five, maybe even six rooms, depending on the palace. Um, yeah, but she doesn't leave that suite of rooms and she doesn't see the king. She doesn't see any men. Um, what did and, they do all day? Like uh, the ladies? And, 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 and listen to music? I or? think, yeah, there's there's some evidence in the sources that they do things like um, uh, to sort of relieve discomfort from being pregnant. So herbal baths and things like that, um, poultices, tonics, those sorts of things. But yes, I mean, probably very similar to what they do on a normal day, just without the comings and goings of male servants. So there's probably needlework. There's probably um, making music because usually a few of the queen's ladies were musical. Um, There's sort of this sociability going on as well. And then probably also a lot of religious observances because this is a very, very fraught time for them. And what does it mean? Why did they do this? What does it mean that Mm -hmm. they're in their chambers for this long? Well, I mean, it's really fascinating because it's something that kind of develops over the course of um, a couple of centuries, as far as we can tell. Um, and it's something that starts out, or at least is influenced by um, practices on the continent in the courts of France and Burgundy. Um, and it seems to be, it, it's partly obviously for the comfort of the mother, for her safety, right? Um, the idea is to make this sort of space as sort of comforting and, and quiet and warm as possible for a mother who's about to give birth. Um, but I think it's also a, a mark of status. She has the wealth and the support system necessary to be able to just sort of go, you know, leave, um, set herself apart from the court and um, and for a month up to the birth. And then usually uh, several weeks, if not a month afterwards, before she um, leaves her chambers to, to become churched and rejoin the world. And would she leave? When's the, is that when the baby would be introduced to everyone? When we have like the 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 renaissance version of like the hello magazine photo oh shoot. right right no that the baby is usually introduced to everyone um uh the christening or or baptism depending on what you want to call it um and that usually happens a few days after birth because you want to get the baby baptized because um anything can happen when it comes yeah. to newborns in the renaissance and and the baby needs to be baptized as soon as possible so usually it's a couple days without the mom without the mom she's okay. still in her chambers usually the queen is still in her chambers the king doesn't also he's also usually sort of off um uh, at, in, in court somewhere, often visiting with the queen, but the baby is taken to baptism by the godparents. They're the ones sort of involved in the baptism ceremony at court. Yeah. Okay. I'm, th- th- I'm, I'm still thinking of this month long mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. I mean, I never, probably I... two months really. Yeah. Wow. Because she'll go in for about a month and then she'll probably stay for another month before she's churched and rejoin the court. Mm-hmm. Well, so let's talk, you know, my view of contemporary obsession with royal babies right. is that it's just kind of pointless gossip right like what was this pointless gossip for people in the renaissance like how was it useful politically how was it useful for the queens like you talked a little bit about the importance of legitimacy Mm -hmm. especially with making sure that the like 
potential heirs to the throne were recognized. Right. Yeah. I mean, that that is, I think, the crucial part of all of this for the queen is that we talk a lot about, you know, oh, uh, you know, she's a successful queen because she gave birth to a son or whatever. But yeah. it's it's more than that. It's it's a son that is acknowledged by everyone as the legitimate heir to the throne. Yeah. And we have lots of examples of queens throughout history who, although being completely blameless for one reason or another, there's a lot of questioning about whether or not um, the baby they just gave birth to is truly the heir to the throne. And so you have have an example like Margaret of Anjou. She finally gives birth um, after several years of nothing happening in the marriage um, to a son, Edward. He's healthy, but her husband, Henry the Sixth, is is going through a period of madness and doesn't recognize the baby. And therefore, what does that mean? like he, 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 he looks at the baby, he rejects like, it. Not yeah, a baby. no, he's he's he doesn't. He's I mean, I think in most of his states, he's almost like catatonic. But the idea yeah. is that he he refuses to acknowledge this as his son. And so there's a lot of questioning um, and and worry that you know this this child for whatever reason isn't going to be considered legitimate and margaret of anjou has a lot of trouble with that you know and we get essentially the wars of the roses because of this so so i want to unpack like what sort of things did what it works well mm -hmm. what sort of things did people do to say yes that baby good baby definitely definitely like, a how royal they baby. Do that? yes well it's all about sort of um paying attention to and acknowledging the status of, of the, the queen and the baby at the same yeah. time so we'll have chambers that are are richly appointed as we discussed before we have these very elaborate ceremonies where she leaves the court they, she's then also has another elaborate ceremony where she's welcomed back into court life and is purified at the door of the church, which uh, indicates that, you know, her pregnancy has, is over, but also yeah. that she had has had a legitimate child because women who don't have a legitimate child, right, if you give birth to an illegitimate child, you don't get churched. So all of these ceremonies are sort of geared towards acknowledging that what she has done is um, important. It's sort of very important politically, but it's also morally sort of acknowledged by the church, by the court, as this is this is um, a, a, you know, a valid pregnancy. And just something that I'm mm -hmm. noticing that, that, that I think is important to draw out is often when we talk about the symbolism of mm -hmm. life in the past, it can feel like the criticism is, oh, this is a stretch. Right. You know, you're reading too much into mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Uh, you're not... But here we're seeing this sort of symbolism that these rituals were really rich ways that people use to communicate with each other. Yes. That mm -hmm. they were attending as much to it as we are as historians. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and, and you can see that in part um, when the rituals begin to change. For yeah. example, churching, which is, has its fascinating history on its own, aside from just queens. Um, but there's been a lot of great work done on on how, um, you know, ordinary middling sorts and, and noble women were churched. Um, when they try to get rid of churching in um, the Reformation because they see it as this Catholic, you know, popish rite or whatever, um, the women say, no, we want to keep it. Like, we have to be churched. We yeah. cannot go back to our normal lives without it. And there's there's a lot of pushback. And they eventually redefine churching as, okay, this isn't purification. Yeah. That's, that's too popish. This is Thanksgiving. This is saying <laughs> thank you to God for getting me through labor, which, I mean, given the statistics on labor death in this period, Period, you know that's a really good idea yeah. but um it's yeah but it we see therefore that this this ritual had a lot of meaning for women to the extent at which they were going to defend it against 
something like the Reformation. So it really yeah. mattered to them. It, like, it very was, much. It, it, it was yeah. something that people actually yes. liked and gave and, meaning to. And it wasn't just empty. It wasn't empty, dancing. and also yeah. wasn't imposed on them, right? I mean, we might think, yes. oh, purification. There is this this idea that oh, the women have are they're they're dirty, they're impure. Yeah. This is this is denigrating to yeah. women, and and there's certainly a part of that, right? There's that's definitely embedded in there somewhere, but. Women themselves interpreted this as as an honor, as a rite of passage, as an acknowledgement of of becoming a member of the community again, and of their legitimate um, birth. Right? They've given birth to a legitimate child. They get to ch- they get to be churched. Um, so women interpret this very different differently. And it seems that it's not something that necessarily always happens when people are watching these sorts of mm-hmm. things they probably they're 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 themselves paying attention to mm-hmm. these simple are they churched or not was there were there enough nibbles in the right exactly in, in, in the mm-hmm. chambers who visited what yeah. sort of that, that these sort of things are not just things that people took for granted no no they're definitely um they have a, a sensibility of trying to interpret these things i mean much as we do today we do this all the time today we just are maybe less open about I, it i just got married yeah. i just got yeah. married and, oh, and, and there getting, you go. And arranging a marriage is all about like making these conscious symbolic decisions about who gets to sit where, who doesn't. We play a game where it's like, oh, it's not real. Doesn't really look. I don't. I, I really wanted you in my wedding party, but there just wasn't <laughs> enough room. And everybody knows, yeah. but it really does mm-hmm. have a, a, a practical social meaning. Absolutely, and I mean, anytime you know you go to an event. And you you leave it and you go oh well you know they didn't do that very well or I was yeah. I was expecting something completely else you are sort of interpreting like something that someone has put forward yes. in your own way and yes. against your own expectations and what you think should have happened well, whether we it's a to, wedding yeah. or you know a movie or something like that when right? we go to conferences and 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 talk you know give comments on people's papers mm-hmm. there's all like you know there's a subtle like way of under saying that you didn't like a paper right. a subtle way of mm-hmm. saying you didn't like a paper yes. and mm-hmm. you know and whether or not you just wanted to use the comment section as a way of like promoting your own work, which is often what happens. Um, this you know, is more yeah. of a, a comment than a yes, question. Yes, yeah. there you go. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's talk. About, so we're talking about these 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 rituals that help women and courts establish legitimacy of mm-hmm. babies. Did it? go wrong and how did it go wrong yeah so i mentioned margaret of anjou i mean that that went wrong in sort of this very tragic fashion because of her um uh husband's mental illness um but we also have um you know the fascinating example of the warming pan baby I, so do you want to talk about the warming pan baby? me personally <laughs> i was just gonna say you can talk my 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 knowledge of history begins in 1688 and this yes. is like 1687 Yes. So I don't know about it. You don't know about it. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 this is the sort of thing where if my advisors ask me, I could, I can muddle through, mm-hmm. but I get the names wrong. Right. Right. Well, it's it's interesting because this is this is the baby that sparked a revolution, basically. Yeah. Um, so what we have is in. Um, uh, so we have James II, who's king of England. A very right? bad king. A very bad king. He's Roman Catholic in a very Protestant England. Yeah. He's also, you know, has leanings towards absolutism. And right? he's secretly conspiring with the French. The French. And if you want to do yeah. the one lesson for British history is if you are a king of England or a queen of England, you should do bad things to the French, not good things yes. to the French. He was secretly 
on the payroll well, of the basically. French king, mm-hmm. right? Yes, yeah, no, yeah. certainly. And, um, you know, and his wife was basically considered to be an agent of the French, yeah. um, which is where this becomes very problematic. So James II, he's king of England, um, and he has he has two daughters by his first marriage who are yeah. both Protestant, Yes, Mary and Anne. Um, and But he's got a new wife, uh, Mary of Modena, who is Italian and she's Catholic. And they have been trying for years to have uh, a kid. And she's had several pregnancies um, and they've all died, you know, very young, very sad. So in um, 1687, she's pregnant and actually does give birth to a live, healthy baby boy. Yeah. And this immediately throws all of the people who are opposing James um, into a tizzy because their plan had basically been, we're going to wait for James to die. Yeah. He's old. He hasn't had any uh, kids with this new wife. Um, we're just going to let him, you know, shuffle off this mortal coil. And his eldest daughter, Mary, uh, will inherit the throne. And she's a Protestant. We like her. That's great. Yeah. That was the plan. And then Mary... And, and Mary was married to the most Protestant of all Protestants, Yes, right? she was married to William of Orange, who was not only very, very Protestant, but also a very successful military guy. Yes. So they knew they could count on him, yes. right? He wasn't just Protestant. Yeah. He was a Protestant on a big horse with a large army. Exactly. And from, from everything I know about him, he just really liked... Fighting, fighting Catholics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like, no, he was he was a go getter. That was his hobby. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. So people are people are like, okay, look, James is a drag, but he's gonna die. Yeah, and we're gonna mm-hmm. get Mary, and, and we're, we're gonna, get, gonna get William, and we'll be fine, and we'll be fine, yeah. and then. James is like, hey, I have a kid. I have a kid. I have a baby. I have a son. Yeah. And this is so um, unexpected in a way um, because, uh, you know, as I said before, Mary of Modena, the queen, had had several pregnancies where the baby had either um, been stillborn or had died shortly after birth. Yeah. Um, but, no, this baby is is alive. He's apparently very, very healthy. Um, and so this creates this sort of worry and and um, panic amongst the people who oppose James because now they know this, there's this, this child that is going to be raised a Roman Catholic by yeah. James. He's going to be raised uh, to be this sort of um, Francophile, uh, potential absolute monarch type. By an Italian. And by an Italian woman as well. And, um, you know, and and we're going to be stuck with, you know, another generation, if not more, of the same stuff that we're dealing with now. So they begin to circulate this rumor that um, this uh, prince... <clears throat> Young James uh, is not going to is not the the son of the king, or of Mary of Modena. Wait, how did that happen? Yeah, no, they circulate this rumor that he is uh, some other child, you know, taken from um, some someone out in the country. I'm not sure where they decided the baby was coming from, um, and smuggled into the birthing chamber in a warming pan, <laughs> which is just a you know a little dish usually full of hot coals that keeps you know the bed the bed warm because your sheets are usually cold. So you have like this yeah. this birthing Sarah. So they're saying. Basically, what they're saying is this 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 ceremony of birth that mm-hmm. we've been talking about that there is an illegitimate thing in it. There's that a, yeah. that that for all the pomp, mm-hmm. actually, yeah, it wasn't. Well, that real. it's been subverted. It's that been because subverted. we yeah. can't trust the queen because she's Catholic, because her attendants are not people that we trust. Um, the, ser- the 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 sort of secrecy of the birthing chamber has been sort of subverted, and they've been able to bring in this warming pan baby to substitute um, the uh, the baby that she gave birth to that died. I'm not sure exactly what the story was exactly there, but yeah. So they, mm-hmm. the idea was she had a pregnancy. The pregnancy didn't go right, and they yeah. and, and somebody was like, "Hey, 
I know what we can do. We'll I have just a bring baby, in a, a baby. spare baby. Spare baby. Yep. Gonna smuggle. Yeah. Smuggle it in in the warming pan. Make sure it's a boy. You know. And the bring warming pan seems to be such like what's 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 curious about this from from perspective of 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 this the 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 pomp of of birth is that the warming pan becomes such a symbol. Mm-hmm. Uh, like we call it the warming pan controversy. We don't yeah. call it the fake baby controversy. No. <laughs> we, which is what it is. We which call is it the mean. warming pan controversy because yes. it's this. It's the, the 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 alien element that's supposed to invalidate what should be the legitimate continuation of James's uh, reign. Right. Yeah. I mean, and it's it's a way of sort of obfuscating obs- the uh, the sort of um, nasty little bit of sabotage that they are essentially rendering on this woman's reputation. Right. Yeah. It's the warming pan baby. Um, yeah. I mean, and it's interesting uh, that this this birth. Is is sort of seen as a trigger for this revolution. It's also the reason why the um, there's usually a government official at royal births after. Really? This. Yes. Up until the 19th century, they then they then say, okay, if we're going to have a royal birth, you have to have sort of a member of government. That's there. the most 18th century thing. Yeah. That you have. That's the most. Mm-hmm. Wow. I forget. I forget which secretary it is that draws the short straw that has to be there. <laughs> but um, yeah. So for all of those, you know, when when we get the Georges in the 18th century who had a lot of kids, they had a lot of they kids. Are always there's always going to be a government official there to make sure that you know it's a legitimate legitimate baby yeah and the baby started sparked a revolution so you know i'm wondering probably a lot of pop culture right now is at the time that this episode is released is going to be focusing a lot on this kind of charming side of britain Mm, like mm -hmm. queens oh yeah you know, pictures of babies and skirts and country houses. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I I, I sense amongst like us professional like studiers of, of of Britain that there's a little bit of a sneer that we 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 adopt when we see this going on. Mm-hmm. Like we we that th- this feels like it's not what we want to study. It's not the that that whatever it is that people get obsessed over is mm-hmm. not what we are looking at. We're not the people who read the, the Agatha Christie detective novels. We're not the people right. who, who who focus on the royal baby. I just wonder what you what 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 you thought about this. Is there yeah. is there a way that 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 our professional interests mm-hmm. in Britain as Americans right. like can include this kind of schmaltzy interest in pubs mm-hmm. and you know corgis right yeah i mean it's it's tricky i i'm always interested in the way in which the sort of pop culture informs the academy whether or not we want to admit it because i think i mean i i taught uh british history classes for several years and the number one reason why students told me they was signed up was game of thrones which game of thrones is fictional yeah um it's not based in britain no but it uh, the author, um, Art George R. R. Martin, has said, you know, it is based on the idea of the Wars of the Roses. That yeah. he's used that as a template to write a fantasy novel, and it gets people interested in history. And so, I there's a part of me that, yes, as a professionally historian, uh, trained historian, I, 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 you know, can't help but roll my eyes at some of the things that um, you see in pop culture. On the other hand, it gets students interested, and then they come into the course. And, and they learn, you know, that there's more to it than that. Yeah. Um, or that it's, you know, that we can complicate these ideas or that they're completely wrong and that there's the history is actually much cooler because that is probably my biggest complaint about pop culture history most of the time. It's not so much that it's uh, inaccurate as that the accuracy is 
more interesting. Well, let's talk about that gap. I yeah. mean, I think that 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 you're t- what I think that explains some of the disdain that that historians have for pop culture history. But I, I'm thinking more more specifically about interest in Britain oh, in mm-hmm. general. Yeah, like, mm-hmm. I'm an American. Right. I'm from the West Coast too. Mm-hmm. Like, if you see me and my family, like my dad has barely put on any pants that were not jeans for 40 years. Right, you know, right. mm-hmm. we we are we are West Coasters through and through. We're we're, we're as far away from the snooty East as, as mm-hmm. possible. Um, and I'm interested in Britain from like an academic standpoint, mm-hmm. but there's a way that lots of people are interested in Britain from this kind of like people are Anglophiles. They, they, yeah. have, they drink mm-hmm. tea. They, 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 they watch Downton Abbey. They, Definitely. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I, Hey, one of the reasons why I got into British history is I read a ton of British detective novels. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I've realized that, that I, that, that, that my, Academic interests are basically the same as Sir Peter Whimsey. The um, it's real. <laughs> it is. It is. It is the most uh, twee of all of the the golden age British detectives. Okay. Um, uh, uh, he is a the aristocratic detective. He's oh, into, right. Mm-hmm. Um, early printed books and okay. change ringing, and he drives a car. Yeah, that sounds like. A... <laughs> that, that's my research. It sounds uh, your but, research. Uh, I'm I I have a a a a, a fuzzy soft spot for corgis, like, mm-hmm. but I I I feel ashamed to admit <laughs> sort of stuff. But I'm wondering what do you, what's your position of this? Is another American like uh, student well, of, of 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 Britain? Yeah, I mean, I I have a slight confession to make. I'm not a hundred percent American, okay. and so I uh, my parents are English, oh, okay, and they okay. immigrated in the '80s before I was born. Um, but I hold you know dual citizenship, and um, so I came by my British obsession via my family. Um, yeah. It was just you know that was where we came from, and you know I was five years old and thought I was going to see the Queen at Buckingham Palace when we went to visit my grandmother, that kind of thing. Um, so I, I come by that obsession sort of very, very strongly in my blood. Yeah. Um, so I do. I actually find it a little difficult to figure out why Americans are so interested in Britain because as a kid, that was just sort of, you know, well, that's my family. Yeah, well, it's, um, it's, 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 yeah. A, it's a funny place to like. It's, it's interesting, Because yeah. if you like Fran- French culture, like, you can point to the good food, mm. like, the beautiful place, mm-hmm. like... You know, Paris seems nice. Uh, when you like Britain, like you kind of have to apologize for it. Like London mm. is an interesting city, but it's like not my favorite place to be in the world. Right. It's dark. The, <laughs> the weather's horrible. The weather's horrible. Yes. The food is fine. Yeah. It's fine. No, the food is. I, I I will stand up for British food. I you know I grew up eating my mom's cooking. British food, it gets unfairly maligned, okay, well, I will say. <laughs> but it's not like Thai food. No, no, no. I mean, it's 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 home cooking. I mean, I, I do wonder. I, I mean, I always kind of figured that Britain is a bit, it's American. Uh, the, the reason why I think Americans like Britain so much, or British history in particular, is that it's, it's far enough away to be different, but yeah. not so far that it challenges you too much. 
Yeah. Because it's it's in English. We can understand what they're yes. saying. Yeah. Thank goodness. Yeah. Um, Sometimes. It's, yeah. You know, it's 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 a history that very much feeds into our own history as a nation, right? Yeah. Like you run straight into the into the American Revolution um, from British history, right? It, it looks familiar, but yet it's interesting and different. It's got these bits and pieces that we don't have, a royal family and aristocracy, big houses, um, that kind of thing. So it's, I think it's, it's a little bit of that. It's, it's just different enough to make it interesting, but it's not so different that it's going to challenge you too much. It's not so different that it's like, you know, sort of taking you out of your comfort zone in a lot of ways, especially the way in which British history is presented or British culture is presented in the U.S., which is, you know, it's it's the Downton Abbeys, yeah. it's the royal family, it's, you know, uh, to be perfectly frank, it's primarily white upper class culture, yes. right, uh, that you're getting from England. You're not getting the inner city um, life and music that's going on in, in London, which is incredibly diverse, both um, class-wise and in terms of your ethnic origins. I mean, London is the city in which the most number of languages of the world are spoken in one place. Yeah. Like, basically, all the language of the world, there's somebody in London speaking it right but, now. But our reflection in American pop but culture it, it, you don't is get that. a lily white country house exactly. mm-hmm. with a bunch of people sipping tea. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. it's it's this dream where we can all be counts and countesses and we don't get the troubling bits of American history exactly. where we have to wrestle with class right. and race. Or and if oppression. you do, it's in this Downton Abbey way where, well, the servants and Lady Mary, they really were best friends and they, they really, loved each yeah. other. You know, it, it's yeah. not, you know, the women in the factories like losing a finger or whatever. That is that kind of thing. So yeah. it's, uh, you're getting the very, very safe version of Britain when you get it in the U.S. And I I think that's, you know, again, it's, it's the sort of, it's just different enough to be interesting, but not so different that it's going to challenge you too much. It's cozy. It's cozy history. You heard of cozy mysteries i mean that's a bit yeah. what you, those those detective yeah. novels that you're talking about are um it's these you know these detective novels that are sort of puzzles and are going to get solved by the end of it but aren't you know the super gritty girl in the dragon tattoo kind of detective novels right british history in a lot of ways is, is cozy history right it's it's close to us but it's not but it's not exactly the same yeah it doesn't necessarily speak to all of our own political problems um right like when you read american history especially now um, you can't help but reflect on our own political situation. But if you disappear into a biography of Elizabeth I, you don't have to think yeah. about it reflecting too much on our own situation unless you want to. And so I guess one of the things that that, that, that historians of Britain should do is to make that history less cozy. Make I would it hope more so, troubling. yeah. I mean, yeah. and I think in, in Britain, it's interesting, they deploy their history all the time. Um, yeah. You know, you, you Google Henry VIII and you will get a million news stories about, you know, Brexit um, and Henry VIII. Yeah. Uh, so they, they deploy that uh, in the way that which Americans deploy you know, Lincoln or something yeah. like that. Like it's it's very much in part of their it's conversation. Not cozy. It's, it's not, not cozy. cozy for it's them. incredibly problematic yeah. and, and debatable. Yeah. And it's it's just that we as Americans haven't sort of gotten that in um, to our own discourse yet. Um, and yeah, I mean that's that's part of our job, I think, as American British historians, is to bring some of that questioning in. Hopefully. Great. Well, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. It's been a fascinating question, and I I, I think that I'm going to return to the this problem of cozy history quite a bit in the future thank you very much